Uh, take your Bibles now and turn to 1 John chapter 2. As we look at verse 7 through 14, and what I like to call a mark of a Christian. Before I read the text, I wish you all uh, could be in here. I know you're providentially hindered, but um, I, I think it was Sydney that took the time to print out pictures of the congregation and put them on the actual pew. My goodness. Um, it warmed my heart uh, to, to see that because now I could see your faces. It reminds me of the time in Nehemiah when the people stood to listen to the word of the Lord. Uh, so all of you are standing in front of me now, and I am seeing your smiling faces. And so praise the Lord. Even though you're not here with me now, um, I still get to see your smiling faces. So praise the Lord for that. Hear now the word of God taken from 1 John chapter 2, verse 7 through 14. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes." I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen. And amen. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and these are your people. Please take the offering of your word and apply it to their hearts. May the word go forth and lodge deeply. May the sinner see the beauty of Christ and flee and come and partake to make him Lord and Savior. May the Christian that is listening be filled with the light of Christ, that they might be spurred on to good works and to greater love and appreciation of the Savior. Be with us now as we enter this time of feasting on your word. Amen and amen. A well-known fundamentalist Baptist preacher was on vacation in England one day, one day and decided it would be good to meet with C.S. Lewis. And so this fundamental Baptist preacher met with C.S. Lewis. They had a wonderful time. And then he left and went back to America. Well, 
As the story goes, he came back and all of his friends was asking him, what was it like to meet with C.S. Lewis? To which this famous fundamental Baptist preacher said, that man drinks and that man smokes, but that man is a Christian. That's one of my favorite C.S. Lewis stories because it captures what um, Francis Schaeffer says in his little book, A Mark of a Christian, how sometimes we have these preconceived notions of what a Christian is. You know, throughout the history of Christianity, Schaefer says that men and women have often had these external markers on what a Christian is or what it means to be a Christian. Some of us might wear uh, a cross around our neck to show that we're a Christian. Or we might wear a little fish on our lapels to show that we're Christian. Or some of us might cut our hair a certain way or dress a certain way or use certain Christian phrases. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that those things in and of themselves are bad. No, that's not my point, and that's certainly not the point that Schaefer is making. What Schaefer is saying is that those things in and of themselves are not what it means to be a Christian. In fact, in his book, Schaefer said this, that our Lord and, Je and Savior Jesus Christ told us what is the distinguishing mark of being a Christian in John chapter 13, verse 33 through 15, and it says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you also love one another. And catch this. Why should we love one another? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The distinguishing mark of being a Christian is loving one another. Now, you might say, Pastor Dennis, what does it mean to love someone else? Well, he, here is what I think the Bible is saying. Love is an inward, all-consuming desire to seek the good of others because of what Christ has done for us. That's what love means. This inward, all-consuming, all-in, passionate, relentless love that this feeling that we have inside to help others and to seek the good of others because of what we see Christ indeed has done for us. That is what Christ would have us. That is the mark to which Christ would have us to pursue. The very distinguishing thing. Now, John picks this up in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, down through verse number 14. He's talked about... Uh, us having this religion of joy. He's talked about us cultivating a lifestyle of repentance. He's talked about us uh, realizing and encouraging one another that we have this shared advocate. Now he's telling us that we need to adopt the single characteristic, this mark of being a Christian, and that is a profound love toward one another. And I want to show you how he does that. There are three uh, sections that he uses to show us that we, if we want to live life together well, we need to love each other well and it needs to be seen and felt. So here are the three. First of all, I want to show you the logic of love, uh, the learning to love, and the labor of love. Okay? I'll say those one, one more time. The logic of love, learning to love, and then of course, the labor of love, the labor of love. First of all, let's notice the logic of love. Notice with me in verse number seven. John says this, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. 
the old commandment is the word that you have heard. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is the word beloved. Isn't that a wonderful word? We don't say that enough anymore, right? Now, to understand that word beloved and what, what it truly means in the import of this text, I want you to notice in verse number one, when John calls those he's talking to, my little children. Now, John is saying, my little children. He's telling that to them because he wanted them to see the love he had for them in terms of the care he had for them and his desire to see them walk in truth and confess their sins. Well, when John calls us the beloved, he's reminding us of the profound love that God has for us that we are seen as the beloved. And beloved, this should, this should overwhelm us. I, you know, I remember as a little child, my mother had a pet name for me. Now, I am not going to tell you the pet name. Number one, because it's embarrassing. And number two, it will probably end up in a meme. Okay? So I don't want that to happen. But trust me, it was, one, it was just a wonderful pet name that she had for me. And, and I remember growing up as a child, if I was in trouble my mother would call my name. She would say, Dennis, and, and I would get reprimanded. Now, if I was really in trouble, she would call, she would use my whole name, Dennis George Lewis, you know, and, and then I know I was in the stew then. Um, but, but on the flip side, if she used that pet name, then I knew that no matter what the situation was, no matter what it is I, I did, I was the object of her love and affection rather than her wrath. In fact, she would often use that pet name toward me to comfort me. And when I heard it, I felt loved by it. I felt safe. I felt secured because I know that that name, bound up in that pet name, was this overwhelming, passionate love that my mother had for me. And beloved, in the same way, when we, see Paul, when we see John here saying that we are the beloved of God, we should see bound up in that a profound love and desire Christ has toward us. And Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. J.I. Packer in his book, um, says that this is a tsunami of love. And knowing God, he says, think of it as a tsunami of love, this love that's overflowing and consistently poured out on the believer because, it, because it's this love that God has toward us. And herein lies the logic of love. Herein lies the logic of love because you have been so loved by God. Because this love is free-flowing and overflowing, we now have the ability to love others. Because of this relentless, passionate pursuit of our soul, we as God's people can now relentlessly pursue the good of others in deep, affectionate love. Now, there are critics of Christianity probably looking at this and saying, well, Pastor Dennis, isn't that a little selfish? You know, isn't it selfish that because you are loved by God, you now have the ability to love? Isn't there something in inherently selfish and therefore inherently wrong with that love? And you, you know the answer to that, right? No. Of course it's not selfish. 
I mean, let's think for a moment about the doctors and nurses on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic, putting their lives on the lines to save people. It would be insane and even wicked and crazy to suggest that the only reason why they're putting their life on the line or caring for these patients is because they are getting paid. And somehow their care towards the patient is selfish because they're receiving some benefit of that. That's nonsense. In fact, the fact that they're getting paid frees them up to love even more, to care for even more. In the same way, when we are loved by God passionately and it's a pursuing love, it frees us up as Christians to love other people because we have been loved by God. What I consider selfish is this love that I hear all the time in our society in terms of this love for the greater good, where people say we don't need Christian idea of love because we have this shared and common desire for the greater good. Well, here's the problem with that love, and here's the reason why that's inherently selfish. All forms of love that are based on the greater good is a form of utilitarianism. And utilitarianism says, you know what? Um, we show love to the majority in terms of the greater good for those around us, and that this form of ethics says whatever makes the majority happy, whatever makes the majority comfortable, that's how we're going to love and show love to the people. The problem with that is, number one, it severely impacts the minority. If you're not in the minority, you don't get loved as much. And not only that, the person saying that and the person loving often is in the majority. They're the ones that are receiving the love. But the, the love that we see that John is saying the Father has toward us is a love for everyone, all his creation that's being poured out on, onto them. And if we love with this sort of utilitarian ethic, it, it causes us to be profoundly unloving and selfish. And we see this in the parable of the unmerciful servant. Most of, most of us know this parable well, the parable of the unmerciful servant, where the servant comes, he's put before the king, and he can't pay uh, his debt. And so the king says, we have to sell all uh, your family in order to pay this debt. And then he pleads for his life. He pleads for his life. And so the, you know, the, the servant says, or uh, you know, the king says, okay, fine, I forgive all of your debt. And immediately after he's forgiven of this great debt, he runs out and he finds someone who owes him a fraction of what he owed the king. And he lays hold of him and he demands his money. And the poor guy says, no, I don't have it. Please have mercy on me. But he says, no, I'm not going to have mercy for you. And he throws him in prison. And then the king finds out about it and he says, you know what? Because you've done that, I'm going to throw you in prison. And you're going to be scourged until you could pay it back. You know, in the same way, I think the reason why a lot of Christians are so profoundly at times unloving is because they don't fully realize how much they are loved by the Father. I think the reason why so many of us struggle with loving others and being selfish and mean is because we don't fully comprehend what has been done for us, the debt that has been forgiven on our behalf. And the Word of God says when we don't have that profound understanding, we end up being selfish and unloving towards others. So the logic of love says because we've been loved by the Father, 
we then can show that love to others. Notice also with me, not only the logic of love, but notice how John calls us to learn to love. The learning to love. Notice with me in verse number 7, down through verse number 11. He talks about the new commandment versus the old commandment. And sometimes it could be a little bit confusing. What does he mean by the old commandment being the new commandment and the new commandment being the old commandment? Well, if you were a Jew, the primary text you would go to to understand the old commandment or the love ethic is Leviticus 19, verse 7 through 18. And in that text it says this, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And this is the love ethic that John says that they had from the beginning. This profound sense of love. Now, why does John say that this is now, this old commandment is now the new commandment? Why does he make that suggestion? Well, the number one reason why he makes this connection is because now the new commandment, which was the old commandment, it finds its expression in Christ. Christ is the one that takes this old commandment and applies it to the new covenant believer. We are called now to have this particular ethic. And the number one way in which we show this ethic is through loving one another. Notice with me in verse number 7. The word of God says, Whoever loves his brother abides in light, and in him there is no cause of stumbling. Go back to verse number 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. The way you and I show that we understand this new commandment and we're walking in the light is by loving our brother, this profound love for our brother. Now, the Pharisees in Jesus' day and now in John's day taught that it was okay for us to hate or show or be unloving if someone was our enemy. Jesus points this out in Matthew chapter 5. But beloved, that's not the love ethic. You know, one of the darkest times in my Christian life happened on a night where I was talking to uh, my mentor. And he and I were on the opposite sides of an issue. And I remember as me and him began to talk, we began to become heated and angry at one another. And it got to a point where we started yelling and screaming with one another, and it was awful. It was absolutely awful. The gloves came off. We started insulting one another and tearing into one another. And I remember at a certain point I looked at him and he no longer was the man I loved and respected. I looked at him as if he was the enemy. To make matters worse, we're in a group of a bunch of people. Some were Christians and some were non-Christians. And I distinctly remember somebody looking over at us and saying, aren't they supposed to be Christians? Now I call it my darkest hour as a Christian because in that moment... I was looking at someone who is supposed to be a mentor and someone who had shown great kindness to me. I was looking at them as if they were the enemy. And you know, so often in our Christian life, we look at people in our lives as the enemy. Our spouse, 
we get angry and frustrated at them, we look at them as the enemy. Parents, you look at your children as the enemy. Children, sometimes you look at your parents as the enemy. And we look at each other with this profound hatred and anger when we get upset at them. And beloved, that's not the gospel. We are not showing the world the love ethic. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that even if you consider someone your enemy, you ought to still love them. And make no mistake, if we do not show profound love to those around us, if we keep looking at people as the enemy, there are profound consequences to the kingdom of God. Here are two. First of all, the world is watching us. They're watching us. They're watching how we love one another. The, Christ, the critics of Christianity have a point. Sometimes Christians can be the most unloving people in the world, especially towards unbelievers. I'm ashamed sometimes to look on some of the blogs and see the way Christians speak of those in the LGBTQ community. Or to speak of the way, or see the way they talk about someone from an opposing political party. Are we not called to a higher standard of love? I'm ashamed sometimes to think of the way Christians can be so nasty and mean-spirited towards those that we disagree with. Are we not called to a higher ethic? Is the world not watching and seeing how we're treating one another? That's why you and I should have this profound sense of reverence and care and love toward one another. But not only that, not only is the world watching, but as French theologian Jacques Ellul says in his book, The Subversion of Christianity, if, you all, if we as Christians say that we believe in the ethic of love and we believe that God so loved us, but yet in our action, in our practice, we're so unloving. What we do in our practice has a direct impact on what we actually believe. He says that they actually are in a reciprocal relationship. If we believe one thing and then we do something else, eventually what we will end up believing that which we do. So if we continue to act profoundly unloving toward other people, the Word of God says, or at least Alil says, that what's going to happen is it's going to change our belief. And we stop looking at Christianity principally as a religion of love, in which we love and care for one another, and we start placing something else in that spot. So how do we learn to love? We learn to love by learning to love our brother in Christ. And stop looking at them as the enemy. Stop looking at them as an object of wrath and instead look at them as an object of profound grace. Notice the third thing, and that is the labor of love. The labor of love, and it's found in verse number 12 through 14. Now, verse number 12 through 14 in our eyes can sometimes look like an addendum to the last chapter. Like, what, what is John talking about? Well, what John's doing is John is pointing out what a labor of love looks like. In other words, how do we practically love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, you'll notice that in his address, John talks about fathers, and he talks about um, young men, but this text actually belongs to everyone within the life of the church. And John gives us two ways. I just want to point out two ways. There are many more, but I just want to point out two ways in which John practically shows us to love. And the first one is we ought to be actively encouraging one another. Notice what John says here. He says, I'm writing to you little children. Little children. 
He says, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. He says, little children, you're saved. You're in the kingdom. You should be encouraged by that. He says, fathers, you know him from the beginning. Young men, you're strong. These are words of encouragement. Now, I remember one time being in the presence of a dear saint, and she said, you know, I don't really like to encourage people. Because whenever I encourage people, that causes them to get a big head and it causes them to become prideful. And in my mind, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, when Jesus created water into wine, he didn't think, you know what, I'm not going to do this because people are going to get drunk. No, of course not. He just created water into wine for the enjoyment. In the same way, when you and I encourage people, we ought not to be worrying about people getting big heads or becoming prideful. That's not the point. The point is that we seek to love each other by encouraging one another. And by the way, encouragement is not flattery. Flattery is when you and I say something to someone in order to manipulate them and get them to do what we want them to do. But that's not what encouragement is. Encouragement is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 35, 27, delighting in the righteousness of another. Pointing out ways in which you see the Lord has worked in their life and you're encouraging and spurring them on to do it. Husbands, encourage your wives during this time. They need to know that their labors are not in vain. Wives, encourage your husbands. Children, encourage your parents. Parents, encourage your children. There should be a wellspring of encouragement going on in our homes because we need that. That's integral to who we are. That's, what, uh, that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to loving other people. Encourage them and spur them on. That's what Jesus Christ does for us. But not only that, as they, say in the infor- uh, as they say in the infomercial, oh, wait, there's more, right? There's one more. Notice how John takes the time and he labors to see people how God sees them. This is a powerful concept. When John looks and he sees the little children, he says, I see someone who has been forgiven. When he sees the father's He says, I see someone who knows God from the beginning. When he sees young men, he says, I see an overcomer. I see someone who has the word of God abiding in him. I see someone who's strong in the faith. He sees them as God sees them. Now, sometimes in our life, we struggle with this. All we see is the unfinished product, amen? Right? That's all we end up seeing. We, we have a turtle in our home. It's carved out of wood. We call him Yertle the Turtle. I know it's not original, but, um, but that's his name, Yertle the Turtle. And, and Yertle the Turtle is beautiful. And I remember we were in a market in the Bahamas visiting my brother, and my brother comes and brings me this big turtle. I'm, I remember just being so excited. I'm like, wow, this turtle is beautiful. And so I, I take this big turtle, and I'm walking through the market, and I'm trying to find my wife to show her this big turtle that my brother uh, got for us. And as I came around a little corner, I saw a bench over on the side with um, someone carving a turtle. Um, and, and he was sitting down, and he was carving the turtle. He had, this, he had this knife that he was just chopping little pieces off. And you can tell it's the forming of a turtle. But around him was messy. I mean, there were wood chips on the ground. There were wood chips on him, and it was in his beard. And he's just carving and sanding. And I looked at that, and I was like, yeah, you know, who wants to spend their time doing that? 
But, but that's how we are towards one another. We look at each other and all we can see is the turtle being carved and, and, and sand everywhere and mess everywhere. We, all we see is each other's messiness. All we see is the unfinished turtle. But don't you understand that everyone eventually will become like Yertle the turtle, beautiful and polished, something befitting to put before the Lord. And that's what John is telling us, that all of us need to remind and be reminded of the fact that all of us are being carved into the image of Christ. And we ought to see each other like that. Yes, we're sinful. And we see it every day. We see the mess and the, and the wood chips of our lives everywhere. But John says, no, we need to look at each other and see each other the way God sees us. As overcomers. As those who have had their sins forgiven. That's the message and the import of this text. Now, some of you are looking at me. You're saying, Pastor Dennis, hold up. Whew. That's, a lot of, that's a lot of bluster, but you don't understand. You don't understand my situation, okay? I live with impossible people. It would be like casting pearls before swines if I tried to love someone like this. You don't know how difficult my parents are. You don't know how difficult my spouse is. You don't know how difficult my coworkers is. You have no concept of how difficult my neighbors are. You know, you're just spouting off and you're saying all of these things like every preacher does, but you don't understand my life and where I'm coming from. And you're right. I don't know. You're absolutely correct. I have no idea what you go through on a daily basis. But I do feel your tension. I know it's hard to love people. And so I hope now you're beginning to understand why Paul says... If anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And perhaps now you're beginning to realize why you need the power of the Holy Spirit, because loving others is a God-like task that only God can enable you to do. Perhaps now you understand why the Bible says uh, that we ought to walk in the Spirit, live in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and live by the Spirit. Now you're beginning to understand why the Holy Spirit in this picture descended on Jesus Christ like a dove as an empowerment for his ministry. Now you're beginning to understand why Jesus rose up a great while before time and prayed. Now you're able to understand why David begged God and said, do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. Now you're beginning to understand why Paul says, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now you're getting why Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the earth. Now you're finally realizing that our word, our religion, does not come in word only, but in power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Now you're getting it. Now you're understanding why you need to wake up in the morning and daily beg for the power of the Holy Spirit in your life so you can do the one thing God has called you to do. Love others. Nothing else will do. You can't fake it. You can't hope to make it. Either you have the Holy Spirit empowering you to love others, or you don't. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and personal Savior, I'm not saying that you're not able to love. Maybe. But I know this. 
Without the power of the Holy Spirit, your love will be selfish and eventually will destroy others. And Christians, the same with you. If you're depending on your own strength, you won't be able to do it. But with the strength and power of the Holy Spirit, you can have this inward, passionate desire to love others and to minister to others relentlessly and passionately in the same way your Savior did. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, yes, this call to love goes out to all. And this call to love is a powerful call. And we feel the tension. We feel this tension in our souls. That we cannot do what you have called us to do. We cannot bear the mark that you have called us to bear. Because we're sinners. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Because it's a God-sized task to love people well. And we cannot do it. Where we can't even hope to do it without your Holy Spirit upon us. So come, Lord, empower your people. Give us the ability to do what you've called us to do so that those that are watching may see that we are truly yours by the way we love one another. Amen and amen.